Now, now listen to me. Even though you're not actually selling stock yet, I want you to remember the coda we have here, okay? Did you see Glengarry Glen Ross? Yeah. Okay, do you remember ABC? Yeah, always be closing. That's right. Always be closing. Telling's not selling. That's the attitude you want to have, okay? Welcome to the One Broken Cog Podcast. Join John and Brian as they share small adjustments that lead to major impacts. One broken cog. I am Brian Olson. You know, I love talking about sales. It's the engine that drives businesses forward. And it's rare I get to speak to someone who gets it, who understands process, methodology, and has actually performed at an elite level. Well, my guest today is just that. He's the co-founder and managing partner at Ad10, and he is David Ledgerwood. Now, throughout his career, David has closed over $35 million with an average deal size in excess of 150000 now, he has deep-rooted experience in selling software and services and has helped several companies grow into their mid-seven figures. Now, in 2007, David walked out of his job and moved from New Jersey to Nashville to start a company. He got to a 500000 run rate before the Great Recession chewed him up and spit him out, but he never lost a startup bug. He moved into EdTech and built his business development chops, hopped to a COO role, consulted, mentored, and coached. And in 2015, he joined Gun.io. He now runs Ad10, a company that provides lead to close sales execution for B2B tech-enabled services companies, ready to leap from six to seven digits of revenue. David, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome to the One Broken Cog Podcast. It's great to be here. I love y'all's name. I, I read, I've read your stuff online, and there's there's always at least one broken cog. So sometimes it's me. I got to be honest with you, but yeah, I'll tell you, man. That's according to my <laughs> wife. It's definitely me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I got to say, David, look, at I'm a big wrestling fan, and I, I see that you're rocking the Stone Cold Steve Austin look. Was that on purpose or just uh, by chance? It's my 13th startup, and I have five kids. Uh, so that's that's how you end up. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, man, you start to see those gray hairs early, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I remember being told early in uh, my entrepreneurial career that I was I was trying to sell you know, what we were doing. And, and people would say that, you know, like, you don't have enough gray, gray beard yet. Well, now I do. So... Now I'm now I'm selling stuff. <laughs> your badge of honor, right, or your battle score? Oh my gosh, food. yeah, man! I have a shiny dome and and gray hair, so uh, I, I attribute <laughs> that more to parenting, I think, than to uh, entrepreneurship. But it's a close second. No, it's true. My sister reached out to me. She just turned thirty-seven, and you know, I just turned forty. So she's like, "Yeah, I'm not even tired," you know. And I said, "Hey, have kids. You'll be eternally mm-hmm. tired. Mm-hmm. Trust me." So, David, you moved from New Jersey to the Midwest, right? What what prompted that move? Oh man, you can't say Midwest about about Nashville, Tennessee. They get really upset with you. You, you, you guys, you, we're the we're the South. Oh, the South. Okay, so you moved to the South. <laughs> um, at the time, yeah, I wanted to uh, you know get out of the rat race, and you know I had some uh, business partners that we really wanted to start our own company. We were looking for places that were frankly warmer, uh, up and coming types of markets, and uh, we narrowed it down to several in the in the southeast and chose nashville which in 2007 was certainly up and coming but nothing like what you have seen now and the the massive growth here so uh i can't say that we did an enormous amount of planning uh, we kind of picked a cool place on the map and we moved here and um turned out to be right but it could have could have turned out to not be right so uh <laughs> but it, yeah, it's a great city to, to live in i uh, appreciate the speed of life you know, in the South and the cost of living change and, you know, those things. I, I'm born and bred New Jersey, New York. So, you know, mad respect for my, uh, my <laughs> Mets up there, but, uh, 
you know, it's, it just wasn't for us anymore. And it's a nice place to raise kids and kind of chill out. I actually, I split time between Nashville and Dallas. So I have two different sort of nice uh, places there. So, yeah. Yeah. I know a guy that just moved from Jersey out here to California and he says, man, you can't find any type of Italian food. Like every Sunday <laughs> I make a gravy and it's like almost impossible to find everything for that. And I remember when I went <laughs> to New York and I came back and I was in an Italian restaurant and I was talking to my wife and telling her about what we ate there. And I said something about broccoli Rob and this couple that were seated next to us looked over and said, wait, are you from New York? Nobody out here has ever said anything about broccoli, Rob. How do you know right. about that? I, said, I just came from New York, you know? So the well, you said gravy. Be- I mean, like, forget it. Like, nobody would say gravy. The, the gravy here is like, <laughs> you know, it's like a, a mushy brown thing. So, exactly. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, I, I get you, man. I, I want to go back to, you know, Bloomfield Ave and, and get me some legit Italian food when I'm when I'm up north. So There you go. But you're in shape. That's a good thing, right? Because Italian food, man, it weighs you down. Uh, well, I wouldn't go that far. I'm, I'm not in shape, but I'm trying, man. So. <laughs> Now, Dave, I know you were a sales leader at companies like, you know, Explainify, New Orchard and others. What was your role there? What was your trajectory? Were you, did you start as individual contributor? Did you manage a department? Were you like a player coach? Give me the details. Yeah. So on my own sales uh, path, I did, uh, I did work in ed tech, like it says in that, that nice bio, um, where I was, I was primarily on a, a team that would build and answer really big contract RFPs. So I learned a lot about writing your sales responses. There are hundreds and hundreds of pages of government stuff. Uh, Not the most interesting thing in the world, but it did teach me a lot about that. I joined gun.io later and did uh, more like a VP of straight VP of sales kind of role there for uh, services and tech work there. And then we started add one zero after that. And so those those other companies that that you mentioned that are on my, my list, uh, those are our clients, and um, I'm the only one because of being a you know principal in the company. I'm the only one that would list the client names in addition to Add One Zero. We serve as their fully outsourced sales division, all the closers, the rev ops, the whole thing. Uh, and typically, we do that in a, in a a fully white label fashion. You know, so actually, our folks will would be doing the work, but nobody even knows that because on their LinkedIn it says that they only work for. Uh, for example, for the the client. So uh, I'm the only one that doesn't do that because obviously we have to advertise our company. So when I I personally do some of the work, you will see those additional names there. But it looks looks and feels just like we're doing right now. You know, like we will literally get the calls booked for us and from their marketing, from the client's marketing, and we will go in and do the the calls and close the deals and work them through the the pipeline. And, uh, you know, it's a I don't know why, but it's it's weird to find closers as a service, apparently. And uh, we just decided that was the right way to to do it. So yeah, all individual contributor and uh, you know try to be as entrepreneurial as possible and and build the team up around that that paradigm. That's really interesting. So companies hire you because they just can't get it right. They can't figure it out, or are they being proactive and just saying, hey, this is the best method for us to reach our goals? It might be one or one or both of those. Yeah, I, I think that uh, you know part of what I tell everybody when they're building a company is you really, really, really want to super niche down to something that you know, like you, you can't sell to everybody. Uh, so our niche and the the uncomfortable level of niching is that you know we really we look for B two B services companies that kind of feel or are around the technology space, but they are services companies, not straight technology, and it's where a founder has grown, you know, sort of bootstrapped or at least grown the sales up to that mid six figure 
type of range per year. So you say 300,000 to, you know, 600,000 type of range. That's a great place for us to start because we know we have product market fit. We know that they can service and grow the clients. They've got some happy clients. They've been in business a while. It's not a go-to-market strategy. That's not what we do. We come in and scale those operations. So if you have successfully gotten your thing, your service company, again, near and around the tech space in some way, if you've gotten that into the mid sixes annual, then it's a good time to talk about let's build a scalable revenue operation and let's come in and start closing lots of deals and driving more leads. Now you're ready to scale. That's what we do. We scale from the sixes to the sevens. So we want to get to that 5 million kind of mark, right? And then we're out, you know, or we could be out. I don't know. You know, if people want to keep us around, that's fine. But I advise our types of clients, you don't want to hire your own VP of sales. You don't want to hire your own internal sales operation until as a services company, you're in that mid, you know, seven figure kind of range, right? That makes a lot more sense. You have now achieved enough cash flow and potentially should profitability that you can now fund those types of roles. I was that VP of sales. I'm expensive. I have to get a fully loaded salary and commission. If you're only doing $500,000 of sales, why do you want to get one guy and chew up all that money? Instead, it'd be better to have a system and a process of fractional usage like, like we do, where we can build those systems for you and start closing more deals. So I didn't want, as a consultant for years and years and years, I did not want to get paid anymore for advice. I wanted to get paid for revenue. And so like our number one goal for our, our clients is revenue, like close sales. We want real sales. So we have this fun tagline. It's like, you need sales, not a VP of. And that's what we want. People who understand that, you know, to, let's get money. Like, let's go build revenue. That's all we want to do for you. And of course, we would do that in a, a high integrity fashion. We're not going to steal money, lie and do black hat things. You know, so. That's good. That's a good yeah. thing. Yeah. Now, if this thing takes off, David, you've got a lot of salespeople shaking in their boots because if a lot of companies shift to this model, they may be out of a job, right? Or they may come work for you, I guess. I guess if they're good, we'll hire them, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> look, I don't know. You know, I, I don't, I will never dog on anybody that's out there in the sales seat and we do a very specific thing, but I, I can tell you literally yesterday, some, uh, a prospect, a SaaS company doing uh, 120 a month type of deal. So pretty good shape. And they, they got on the call with me, two founders, and they said, right away, your tagline is what hooked us because we have a VP of sales. We're kind of not sure what the guy does. He only does a couple calls a day and wow. we really just want to up our game. We want to increase the volume of closes. You know, can you help us do that? So I don't want that person to get fired. Um, but I, can say that that's a pretty low output for the salary that is likely being paid for, you know, somebody in that seat. So maybe there's something wrong with the system, or maybe there is a personal, you know, kind of laziness issue or something going on there. But uh, talk about a broken cog, like, yes, it's just, it's just inappropriately expensive to achieve nothing. And uh, so we're pretty diligent and uh, pretty hardcore. I guess we bring a little bit of the you know, you can take, uh, take the boy out of Jersey, but you can't take the Jersey out of the boy. So I'm just going to shoot it straight. Like, you know, this person doesn't make you any money. You're wasting money here, here, and here. Let's get that done. If you want to change that, awesome. If you don't want to change that, cool. We're not the people for you, but we are here to, you know, try to 10X your revenue. It's amazing lack of accountability for sales managers. Like the higher up you get, as far as title goes, 
it's as if it's, you know, the, the blame is always placed somewhere else, you know, and there's never any accountability. It's just they're funneling money through somebody who's not producing and they're wondering why their targets aren't being hit. It's really quite fascinating to me. It's unbelievable. Now, how's the dynamic look like as far as the reps that work on these projects? How long are they there for and who manages them? Are you managing them? Yeah, if they're on our team, we call them sales leads and they're paired with an operator. So uh, sort of a, a sales operations administrator. And that's that's the duo. And they, they go to work and, uh, um, you know, they, they really own that book of business. And we will continue to staff that up as as necessary. And uh, they're they're there. They're permanent. They're part of the team at the client. I mean, you, you can barely tell the difference between them and uh, anybody else. It's just that they they have our systems and backup and uh, we are there to plow the road for them because I can tell you that there are a lot of situations where sales can be demoralizing because the other cogs are broken. So uh, marketing can't produce good leads or marketing or someone can't produce sales enablement materials or case studies or testimonials, or maybe there's a customer success and retention problem or churn. I mean, there's any types of things going on there that can be legitimate excuses for why sales isn't working. Maybe your product market fit, your positioning, your pricing, like there's all kinds of stuff that are wrong. So we, we will just look at those as like, Hey, if there's a blocker to revenue, I will point it out to you. And if you don't want to fix it, we'll fix it for you. But, you know, just all those things just kind of seem like speed bumps to us because if we want to grow revenue, then there could be legitimate excuses. You know, maybe the leads do suck. <laughs> you know, maybe marketing <laughs> right. doesn't do their job. Probably that's not the case. In, in many cases, it's, you know, um, it's on both sides. So you just, you know, I don't want to get bull in a China shop, but we want to come in and make a quick difference and, you know, sure. really start booking money. So. No, you have to. And I mean, sometimes you can't sell your way out of a bad reputation. It's very, very difficult. Your cost per lead is is a much higher and you had a whole different talk track there. What do you think about the reps themselves skill-wise? Do they have to have a different set of skills? As an example, maybe you have an enterprise level rep that goes into a certain company or a certain industry-specific rep go into a different company. Is it a catch-all approach or in our industry sales rep typecast? Or do you think they can adapt to new sales environments like different products or services or even a different sales process? I think a skilled salesperson that has the intelligence and ability to, you know, a high performing person uh, looking at myself and should be like, I think, yeah, I could come in and learn to sell pretty much anything um, because I think that it's really about learning a value based selling disposition. So if the thing you're selling, and again, I'm speaking from, B2B. So I don't know anything about B2C. I don't ever want to know anything about B2C. Um, so <laughs> I, I can say for a, a B2B standpoint, if I'm going into a business and I have a solution to sell, it, it, it needs to solve a compelling problem that either makes the company more money or causes you know a significant decrease in costs below the line efficiency-wise, which would really be a, a profitability equation, right? So I I sincerely think there's literally only two value propositions for a B2B solution. And it's either make you more money or make you more profit. And if I can know which one that is, the whole thing ought to be positioned that way. And legitimately, nobody cares about your features. You know, I think they care about your value. And uh, I have, I've hung my hat on that, you know, entirely that, you know, 90% of the time, if I can position your product or your service as the thing that makes somebody more money, it's a hell of a lot easier to sell than somebody this sort of cut the expenses or we'll make, we'll save you time. We'll save you money. Like th those are harder to sell. 
Um, if, if I can increase your top line using the solution, those are the ones we keep eyes on. Uh, we just think it's more valuable. No, absolutely. What, what do you think is a learning curve for your reps when they come into a company in the beginning as far as them ramping up to get started? 30 days, maybe. I, I think of it more as like number of calls. So, you know, it, I like to do 10 to 12 calls, taking careful notes, getting my head around what the position looks like. Then I work on the pitch and the positioning again. And then generally within 20 calls, we should have a pretty good disposition. We kind of do a data mining thing on, we record all the calls and then we have the ops team pull out every question, every objection, put them all in a database, compress them into, you know, categories. We kind of see, well, what, what is the objection strategy look like here? And then how do we uh, come up with an answer that, you know, is, is the authoritative answer to, to solve that objection? push those back up into the marketing funnel so that those are answered before the prospect gets on the call and kind of keep up that, uh, you know, sort of learn as you go type of process. So continue to iterate based on what people are asking and, and track all the things that, that people are asking and the reasons that they aren't buying. So uh, it's kind of like AB split testing, you know, that you might do with your marketing copy. It's just that we're doing it from each sales call. And so, it's not hard to get up to speed when you just recognize the questions, you put them in a priority order and you make sure that you know the answer to the question. Um, you don't need to know all the things you need to know the things that get asked 80, 90% of the time, which gives you credibility to then get off the phone and say, you know, I don't know the answer to that one thing you just asked. I'll get you that answer and I'll email it to you within an hour of this phone call. That's a great way to answer as long as you knew 90% of the other answers. And what just happened then in our system, that's going to go into the database and the knowledge base gets smarter. We now have the answer to that question because we had to answer it once. So within 20 to, to 40 calls, you can pretty much guarantee like 80, 90% of all the questions that will ever be asked are being have been asked. And now we have a good answer for. That's awesome. That's great to hear. Now, from your clients, when you first initially met with them or kind of observed their operation, where were they getting it wrong? What's some of the broken cogs that you found in these organizations? I think people create solutions that, you know, and we're often told as entrepreneurs, you know, create a solution that solves your problem. And that's cool, except then you need to find people to sell it to that are exactly like you. And there's probably not enough people exactly like you in the world. So you probably need to reposition your thing so that it addresses an actual you know, market need. So product market fits a huge one. You can get away charging people money, you know, sort of from your friends and your family and your referral network and different stuff up to a certain point before you start to realize, like, I literally have no idea how to sell my thing to like the cold prospect. And I see that happen a lot. So uh, maybe fooling yourself into the idea that you have product market fit when you don't, you could probably make a quarter million and a half million dollars a year of revenue and not really have a legit feel for, for um, you know, your product market fit. So that's a huge one. The number one missing thing I see is packaging and pricing. Uh, we spend a lot of time working on that up at the front end. It turns out when you package your stuff properly and you offer named packages that are very clear and very simple for what you offer service product doesn't matter. You know, it's the three column kind of deal, good, better, best. That format 
seems like every business has it, but when you dig in, they're really customizing every single deal to try to get it closed. And we probably try to put the, the kibosh on that, so to speak, and you know, fix those those programs so that they're actually easy to sell, which in fact makes them easy to buy. You know, things need to be simplified. Um, so if I see anything more than I, the what I can see the most is people, you know, founders and, and companies have made their selling process far too complicated. So the the path to buying, you're making the prospect do a lot of work. And we try to like say, let's limit that work. Let's focus on the value of the thing and cut out all the friction and make sure the person is educated and that the right person. And, and it's an iterative process, but yeah, I, I don't know that you could fix all that yourself, you know, as your own company. I'm a, I'm a big believer in inviting in third parties to get um, ideas from people who are not the founder because they're too close to the problem. It's true. It's, really, it's hard to market and sell your own thing. You are enamored with your product or your service or the, the thing you invented. Uh, it's like forest for the trees. You know, you just sometimes need that outside opinion. And that's why you have advisors. And it's the same reason I would suggest that we could be successful in, in businesses because we just, we're not in love with your thing. We just want to help you make more money. And uh, we're not blinded by the, the passion of having developed that thing. No, that's great. And you bring up a great point as far as your clients. Like, do they bring a process to you and they want you to fit within that process, saying your reps are going to you know, sell within this process? Or do you bring them a process? Or maybe you redo their process. So how does that work? We're happy to take any input that has been working, but we want to see that it has been working. And it's it's vastly unlikely that we're going to, you know, sort of grab onto that and go, okay, cool. We'll just rubber stamp that and and uh you know, do it again and again. So we we have processes that we know work. Um, we're certainly going to integrate all available useful information from the system, but it, it probably will look closer to what we know will work. You know, um, when we're done, than than what was you know handed over at the beginning. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, if it was working right, why would they hire you anyway, right? <laughs> That's probably right. I mean, look, if you're already doing millions of dollars of revenue and you're crushing it, like, why would you? reach out in the first place. <laughs> so, exactly. Um, but you know, I, I, we get a lot of successful companies that reach out because they've plateaued in that mid six figure range. It's just a place that the companies get stuck. And then let's, you know, so let's take it and, and scale it up, scaling up and replicating and deploying these processes successfully for greater revenue. It's just like, it's not the same thing as getting to that half million mark. So I mean, it's huge. Like if you're a founder that got your business into that, you know, 300 to 600 kind of range annually, you know how rare you are. Like, I mean, it's a tremendous accomplishment, but what got you there won't get you, you know, into the, the future either. So you are going to have to do entirely different things. The business between 500,000 and 5 million is a totally different business than you've been running to get to, to 500,000. You had to do it. We don't fault you for the things that you you did, but now you're building a, a different company that is meant to be 10 times as big. So that's 10 times as much operations and 10 times as much finance and 10 times as much sales, marketing. You know, it's just a different business. That's the business we know how to help you build there. So it's awesome that you did what you did. Now let's do what you need to do to get to the next level. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now to you, David, what's the most important piece or step of the sales process? The most important piece. Hmm. 
That's a good question. You know, I think of it as an end-to-end process where, you know, all the, all the parts are, every touch point needs to be valuable. Um, I tell you what is not the most important piece is like the, the magic sales rep who gets on the phone and like charms people, you know, that we put, we've mythologized this, this super closer rep kind of idea uh, to us. That's the gravy, you know, it's nice or the, the, the cherry on top since we had our mishap on gravy before we can't describe it that way, but um, <laughs> you know, so it's good to have a good salesperson. I don't think that's the most important thing. I think in the process that we do, I can tell you like a huge part of it is we actually set up a pre-call sequence for anybody that books a call, any prospect books a call because of that process I described where we've already captured the objections and the questions. We know that the majority of people ask these top questions. We take the top three questions, we create a pre-call sequence of emails and we give the prospect prior to showing up for a sales call of what we could just call like a behind the scenes tour. Here are the top three questions, three emails in a row, three days before the call that tell you the things that we know you're gonna ask anyway. So we just eliminated a whole bunch of objections because they already got educated before they show up. So it drives the close rate up because people feel taken care of and educated. And it's a neat trick. I encourage anybody to do this, get your CRM to automate the stuff. The other thing that's really valuable about it is we will have people tell us all the time that, you know, hey, your email game is on point. You know, that was really cool how you sent those emails. And we know they didn't even open it. They just saw us in their inbox taking care of them prior to the sales call. So I would say that innovation alone, if you just do that well for your business, you probably see a better, uh, better chance of getting people to, you know, have good, good closing meetings, um, which brings to another piece that we are sincere believers. Now, again, this is B2B services. We know that this doesn't work for every business, but we want a funnel that is tightly oriented to booking those meetings, get them on the calendar and get people to show up at them. You know, because that's where, you know, the magic can then happen. So we would try to go for a one call close. People all the time tell us you can't do that. Uh, you're never going to get to a one call close with our business. We generally can do that. Um, so, you know, it's it's just keeping it tight, short and, you know, um, high execution, high operations. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, one call close, it could be. I mean, well, let me ask you this. When you were doing that 35 million, your average ticket was 150,000. Did you close 150,000 on a one call? Some calls, not always. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes you need to nurture the relationship, but we, we do rely heavily on the, the book call sort of paradigm for like inbound is, is much more powerful than, than outbound. So you, you really want to get, and the reason is there's actually a timeliness and an urgency. Somebody was looking for the thing you do. So I always want people to maximize any way they can the inbound appointment booking so we can really start to knock that revenue off. If you know there's urgency and there's a timeliness to the thing, people want that now. They've been seeking that from an ad, from SEO, you know, from whatever content you have out there, that's a much better position to be in to close faster. Now, if it's outbound and you're doing cold prospecting and maybe you get somebody to show up for a demo and you know all that stuff, uh, vastly lower chance of a, of a close on that, that first call there. So um, yeah, it just depends on how you design the funnel, but it is designed that way. People like money faster than 
uh, waiting, you know, nine months for a long sales cycle. Yeah, no, absolutely. And to me, it's all, you know, micro commitments too. I mean, you're closing for next steps. I mean, it could be, Hey, we're reviewing the contract and you get them to commit to another meeting on the calendar with all the stakeholders to review. Right. So you're keeping the, the deal alive, you know, that yeah. type of, that type. Of yeah. Thing. And that's going to be more of like, for sure. If you're doing an enterprise, like a uh, technology sale or something like that, you know, it, it, it's definitely going to be a longer cycle. So uh, when I'm speaking, you know, uh, about the target of, of our particular business is, is going to be, you know, maybe your ticket size is five to 10 K MRR, or you're getting, uh, you know, a, a $30,000 contract to do a particular scope, you know, those, those we can generally close pretty quick. Uh, but if you were talking about, you know, a $3 million multi-year implementation of blah, 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 for, you know, some enterprise thing, then constellation decision process, then, then of course you would you would go more account based management where you you know you make sure you get a meeting with each appropriate person you work it over time you know so there's no one size fits all you know we try to that's why we try to niche down and serve a particular kind of business so that that we can execute a process that we know works for you know uh, technology and services B two B in a particular zone of time like you know if we can eliminate variables from the thing we know we can replicate the process that makes that kind of business successful. So uh, by no means should anybody listen to this and think, oh, I should copy this guy for my particular thing. I'm not sure it fits your particular thing. And we're, we're really careful to say what kind of business we're speaking of. Yeah, there you go. No, I like it. And, you know, each prospect, you know, has a different buyer persona, right? And they all have different certainty levels and different action taking levels, you know, and you have to, of course, discover that during the process. Some people are very analytical and, you know, you want to give them the time to do the due diligence. Other people, you have to really push them because they're procrastinators. So, you know, a good savvy rep will dig in and understand that, you know, build a proper rapport, build value, and then act accordingly. So from what you've seen, David, sales reps today, what's their greatest weakness? What are they struggling with the most to you? I kind of think I, I like people to have a, a generalized knowledge because I think the conversation that you have with your your prospect makes a huge difference. And I I don't like laser focused people who are just thinking like hey I'm I'm just a sales rep I'm not having a relationship with this prospect. So if you're well read and you you know have you know, just sort of you know a lot of things you're sort of hooked into you can have a conversation about different sports you can have a conversation about activities you know I don't know like geographic areas, you know, stuff like that. It it feels to me like sometimes maybe reps are reading too many books and to taking too many trainings and forgetting that, you know, the, the number one thing that'll make you successful is having that uh, personal discussion, you know, and just, just chatting it up with the prospect so that they like you. And the more procedural you are, the more, remember, everybody who's getting sold to has seen that procedure one way or another, no matter which book you read or, you know, any of those things. There's nothing new, you know, psychologically under the sun anymore to trick somebody into a close, you know. So I don't think you can be as formulaic. It's it's that relationship stuff. And you, you can't make that up. So I would encourage people to, you know, just care about the prospect and want to get to know them just a little bit, not in a cheesy manufactured kind of way. Uh, but again, caveat, that's why I do B2B. It's large ticket. 
I can invest a little more time and thinking into that. I'm not trying to do $10 per month SaaS, you know, so it all depends on where, on where you're at. Yeah, no, definitely. Absolutely. Now, why do you think David, that so many sales managers are ineffective? Yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's the sales manager as much as the sales manager role, maybe because, and I, I think you see this more on like, we just, when companies scale to a, a huge level, you know, well past what, what we work on. And it's almost like, I know I'm dodging that problem because I don't have a hundred reps working and 20 of those, you know, reporting to a manager and having, you know, metrics and all the things like, I look at a company, I don't know, like a HubSpot or something where they just, you know, they have this bullpen of hundreds of people selling. It's just not, not something I'm, I'm interested in. So they must face all kinds of challenges that I don't have to face when we're thinking about one, two, three reps um, and, you know, trying to let them be autonomous and build their business. So I haven't managed a huge sales team and I, I don't want to speak, you know, and, and say that I, imagine what that is. But uh, my suspicion is that the more we try to scale a thing and standardize it, the more it becomes formulaic, the more it becomes just based on number, you know, quota, and what what gets measured gets managed. So you become less and less personalized, you know, a rep becomes, you know, kind of this just sort of cog in the machine, right? And uh, the more you get away from being humans, the more ineffectual you're definitely going to seem as a as a manager of humans. So it, it might have right. something to do with scale. Like maybe, maybe it just sucks to get too big and we shouldn't do that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about following up? You know, a lot of my clients, man, they just don't follow up. I mean, literally sometimes it's because they have so many leads coming into them. They just don't have the time to do it. And they don't yeah. have those admin days where they can just sit down and follow up, you know, for at least six hours, you know, carve out that time. Some people are just lazy. I mean, there's a many different, or they have a really bad CRM system doesn't alert them. They have a really bad tracking system. In your opinion, how many times should a rep follow up with a prospect? Yeah, our our standard system would be probably five follow ups uh, via some kind of you know email or other maybe a text you know kind of thing. If you can, if your funnel can achieve their their. Um, mobile number. We use text for that. Uh, I'd say five times, six times maybe. And um, that's why we really want to get to, you know, one call close, if not one call close, a very discernible process for like, here is an exact proposal and it lasts for two weeks, you know? So, and here's a, if you get this closed in the next two weeks, then maybe there's some incentive or extra value that's added in there. So you have a lot of psychological hooks, you know, urgency, uh, authority, you know, all the different things that you might read, Robert Cialdini kind of stuff. If you exploit all of those, you you probably need to follow up sort of five times. And it, ultimately, I think you just need to have enough leads and meetings where it, it is a game of numbers. And if somebody doesn't want to do business, they're not going to do business. Like following up and reminding them, you know, all these things, like if there's any urgency to do it, they're going to do it now. So I, I tend to just say, let's get enough quality meetings where no one prospect matters and let's let the other ones just cycle out of the funnel and go back into marketing nurture land. Um, so I don't know. I think I'm kind of contrarian in that, you know, like, but why do we get this idea that following up more with somebody makes them 
want to do it. Like if they wanted to buy your thing, they're, they're going to buy your thing. So instead of wasting calendar and time thinking about that, maybe we just go after the ones that want, that want it and let, let 75, 80% of them fall out of the funnel. And if they want it, they're going to come back in a year, but you know, they're let them remember you in a good way. Not that you were this annoying person. Now, on the other hand, I'll tell everybody, look, get the yes or get the no, but a maybe is like, forget it or talk to me later. Like none of those things are actually, and I don't even believe those are real objections, you know? So I try to get to a, a no or a yes and, and let it go from there. That's why I like a one call close. Um, yeah, are we leaving money on the table? Maybe, but like ultimately we want to rise the whole, you know, sort of rising tide lifts all boats. Right. So if, if you yeah. close 20% of what's in there, let the 80% go because they don't, they don't want it. Isn't your time better spent on people that do. Yeah. No, in an ideal world, a one call close would be great. Right. <laughs> yeah. I used to believe like you did, but I found that sometimes it, well, and again, you know, the real, com- the real objection will come up if you are in rapport, right. If you don't mm-hmm. have that rapport, and you don't know anything about their business, they're not going to give you the real objection. And they're just going to give you some half-baked response about maybe, or let me, you know, check with my wife mm-hmm. or something like that. But I think with the, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, with yeah. the follow-up, you know, I've had many examples of going out there and thinking to myself, gosh, you know, this has come up in my system, you know, I have it set for every, you know, I don't know, every two weeks or mm-hmm. whenever it is to check in with this person, man, you know, this is, if it was me, this would be really obnoxious. Right. And you're right. Like, right. Exactly right. what you mentioned. They want it. They're going to do it. And I remember one time calling somebody and this person said, you know what, Brian, I really appreciate the fact that you're checking in on me and mm-hmm. the fact that you care enough about my business to stay top of mind. I definitely want to do this. And I think that person started the, the following week, right? Yeah. And then I had another one. I remember it was like New Year's Eve and it was one of those things where I got dead silent, radio silence. You know, we've all been there, right? Ghost Prospect yeah. is hot and yeah. all of a sudden they go silent. And there's something called boxing out the objections. When you know the industry's pain, you know your competitors, and you know that this person's making an assumption about your offering. And I remember calling the office manager and mm-hmm. saying, listen, you know, we were deep in the funnel, you know, we're deep in the process, we're right at the finish line, everything happened. And she said, Well, you know what? Doctors worried about the time invested, downtime. You know, she gave me the real objection. I said, Well, let me tell you how we can handle that and approach that. And then she yeah. said, Let me get back to him. And then we had a deal the next day. I had an email saying, Man, I can't believe this thing got over the line. I never thought it could happen. And maybe that's the exception, not the rule, but it's always, you know, I always live by the, the credence, you know, one more second, one more hour, one more day. And then of course, yeah. you know, nurture land after that, right? We put it back in the pile and nurture it. But uh, yeah, I think a lot of reps are struggling with that. They're struggling with follow-up and knowing when to call it a day or when to give it that one more try. And I guess knowing your prospect and understanding their process, understanding them really, you know, you really dictates your action from that moment forward. Now, a quick question for you, David, as far as comp goes, because a lot of, a lot of our clients struggle with this and their mm-hmm. structure of comp. Some believe commission only, some believe just paying them a flat salary. Some, obviously it's a combination of both. What do you think? I know there's no magic bullet here, but what do you think in regards to getting a sales rep to perform at their optimal level? What's the best comp plan for a rep? I have come full circle on this myself. So I, I think I don't know that anybody knows this, the perfect answer to this. So I was the type and maybe it just is like a risk type of thing, but I wanted to be on, I didn't care, you know, and it, like I, I wanted to be on a firm full base salary. And I just said, I'm going to work hard. I'm a, I'm a sales leader. I'm going to close as much revenue as I can just pay me a good salary. And I didn't even want commission. And people thought I was crazy, but I just, you know, like 
I just want to get paid. I just want to, I want to do my job and I'm going to do the job to the best of my ability. After I tried that with other people, they said that we hate this and other reps were much more uh, inclined to sort of go, give me uh, a base plus a, a commission. And so we, we ended up coming with some kind of middle ground there. And in our, our system at our company here, you know, we, we do, I think the retainer should be enough or, you know, retainer or salary, depending on how you structure things enough that, you know, you don't want your reps stressing out about trying to look for their next job. You don't want them. They can't pay their rent, you know, get food on the table. So like figure out what a comfortable base is just so they don't have to stress about making their, their car payment. Stressed out reps are going to bring urgency to your calls and they're probably going to get commission breath, you know, like they, they just are, it's not going to be a good situation. So how do you put that person on the phone every day with, you know, what we would call like a calm confidence, like I'm taken care of now the rest is all upside and I can really make a killing if I, if I get after it. So I say, just enough base salary and then you know an uncapped commission is a, is a beautiful thing that's what that's what we do uh, so that that would be my answer now i'm not saying that it fits for everybody but um, that's what we found to be successful and you know there is it's true you know your best paid reps make more than than you do and i, I think that's that's how it should be i mean they're, they're crushing it you know awesome let's let's again let's enrich everybody no, absolutely. They're goal driven. That's the bottom line, right? It's, that's what salespeople do. They live for that. And uh, last question, David, about sales goals. Do you think a lot of goals are unrealistic when companies are they basing it on history and data and attainable achievements, or are these goals completely out of whack? What do you think? I just did a video about this, and again, I'll take the contrarian position. I think sales goals are total crap. I, I it's like a complete waste of time. Um, again our clients are smaller, maybe in, in a big organization. I don't know, maybe it drives something, but I think that it, sales goals, the way we experience them are often just somebody trying to, you know, plan their pro forma and saying, well, I'm going to go spend this much money and backing it out and then saying, so I need this much sales. So that's our goal. I, I don't know. Our, our teams, we look at it and we just say, you know, goals are, are stupid you know what my goal is? Like close 100% of the calls that we have on the best possible deal. We will never reach that goal. However, let's do as much as possible. So, I mean, we want every dollar of revenue that we could possibly get without doing shady bad things. So it makes zero sense to me to have goal sales goals. Like why? Like I'm, I'm not going to stretch harder if, I, if I'm the right person. And then maybe it's like, maybe goals are necessary for people that are not you know, properly compensated, properly motivated, but I would just think there's something wrong in the rest of the system. You know, like if you set goals that, why is that necessary? You know, I, I, I can tell you if, if we're on your team, we're going to try to get every dollar we can possibly get for your business. And the incentive system should be built so that that is a, a positive thing for, you know, all parties involved. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, David, just a very last question. It's a personal question to get to know you just a little bit better. So you're on an island for the rest of your life. You can only bring one book, <laughs> one movie, and one album. What would they be? One book. I would bring How to Win Friends and Influence People, probably. Was it one book, one album, and what? Uh, one movie. One movie. I would bring uh, Pump Up the Volume, 1990 
cult classic with Christian <laughs> Slater. Nice. And uh, I just I just was able to find it online for the first time since VHS. I'm st- stoked about that. And one album I would bring Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction. There you go. I love the answer. Now, David, how can people connect with you, get in touch with you, learn more about Ad One Zero? Well, if you're interested in the company, it's uh, add10.co, uh, add numeral one, zero.co. There's a form on there where you can book to talk to us or uh, just shoot us an email. I'm always up for LinkedIn connections. And I'm David Ledge, Ledger Wood on LinkedIn. That's, that's the best place to find me. And yeah, it would be, it'd be awesome to talk to anybody. We have uh, a B2B founders networking group, uh, like a Zoom support group, kind of pseudo mastermind kind of thing. We do some guest speakers. We help each other out with pitches and, you know, um, all kinds of stuff like that. It's called the expert community. Uh, that's free to join and, and hang out with us. Come and go as you please. So anybody who's a, a B2B founder and is interested in, in that kind of, you know, meeting other people and getting supported in the business, that's a great way to, to get involved. Awesome, David. It's been a pleasure. Let's stay connected. Keep up the good work, my friend. Thanks, Brian. This is awesome. You got it. Thank you for spending time with us today. We encourage you to join the many businesses that we have helped to achieve their objectives, align their departments, and increase their revenue. You can start by reaching out to us at results at onebrokencog.com. Together, we will make small adjustments that will lead to major impacts to your business, your culture, and your bottom line.